0: I promise to bring my experience and curiosity to each episode, then together we'll peel back the onion on this ever-changing discipline that is marketing. I'm so happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hey, Dale. Thank you so much for doing this.
1: Oh my gosh. I'm super happy to do this.
2: I would love to just like start with you just like sharing a little bit about who you are and like what you're working on right now.
1: Yeah. Um... So, I am Dale Maffett Saxman. Um, to start, I guess my a little bit about my background might be helpful because it leads into what I am doing yeah, now. But I've right. basically spent the past almost 15 years um, helping various startups build their sales organizations. Um, my very first one was uh, Tesla and then Twitter, Gusto, most recently Samsara. Um, but in February, I left my role at Samsara and started a you know, consulting firm. So where I plan to do the same thing just for more companies, um, be a consultant to help companies build their sales organizations.
2: That is like, and so your, your resume is like so cool. Um, and I would love to like, know when you started your career, like, did you have ever imagined to have been working for all of these super important companies? I mean, Tesla, Gusto, like these, these just like, to like to the moon kind of companies like were you very like aware that you were involved in this kind of level from the start
1: so depending on how back you went in my resume um let's try let's start with tesla because you were there
2: yeah. i mean in two what was it
1: 2009 nine. Nine. okay so so here's the thing. Cause I think this backstory is kind of interesting, and important. And I get this, this question all the time. I was, I was an ecology major in, in college. Oh. <laughs> um, and then I actually also have a master's in environmental management. And the first three years of my professional life, I was an ecologist for an environmental consulting firm, wow. um, living. I lived in San Francisco. I worked primarily in the East Bay and I really truly believed that my calling was saving the environment. Um, But after about three years in that field, I realized just as clearly that this was definitely not gonna be the correct long-term role or world for me, career for me. So it was 2009. um, I was living in San Francisco. The recession was in full swing. um, And I must've sent out hundreds of resumes and I got exactly one interview and one job offer. And it was to be the first inside sales rep at Tesla Motors. Wow! And you know, I I knew because so many of my friends in San Francisco were in tech. I wanted to go in that direction, or it seemed like the right next step to try. Um, and I really liked the idea of going to a green startup, giving my environmentally minded background. But like at the end of the day, one hundred percent of me ending up at Tesla was just luck. Yeah, I I, I had there was no goal of ending up somewhere like that at that time. So the fact that I joined Tesla in 2009, um, which was about six months pre IPO, um, you know, and my job was literally making a hundred cold calls a day to try to sell the Tesla Roadster over the phone. Wow. The company was in kind of dire financial straits at that point. It was, it was when Elon like basically used the rest of his fortune or so the story goes to, to shore up the company. Um, I mean, it was all kind of crazy. And, um, so to go back to your original question, I mean, I, I had no clue what I was kind of like getting into, if you will, when (laughs) I joined Tesla. Um, and it was just an incredible stroke of luck with an asterisk, um, because Tesla was also a really difficult place to work. Yeah. Can you dig into that a little
2: bit?
1: Well, (laughs) I mean, it was clear very quickly to me that it was not going to be my, my long-term place. And. You know, I think the war stories are probably better shared over a glass of wine and not on a recording that will be shared with the
2: world. I will, I will, yeah, pin you up for yeah. that one, yeah.
1: But, um, but uh, you know, I, I will say I learned a lot about the type of company, like broadly, and, and like leadership model that I don't want to work for mm. during that time. Mm. And I, I feel like that experience, as difficult as it was in the moment, actually was so informative for so much of the rest of my career that as difficult as that job was for so many reasons, um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Like I wouldn't go back and try to get a different job if I could do it all over again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, you know, I, I definitely, after a year at Tesla, I I was, I quit like on like my 366th day on the job because I wanted to make sure that I got my options. Yeah. The tiny number of options that I did get, it was so very small. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to get the the heck out of Dodge as fast as I
2: could. Um, and just one more question on that though. I wonder, or just curious, like through all the experiences that you had or Mm -hmm. that you've had, when you were at Tesla, was it clear, like, did it, did it seem like just kind of like another kind of, like, did it feel messy? Did it feel like, is this really going to work? Is this like, just like anything else? Or did you, or, because I guess my big question, like with this whole topic of talking to you, especially about IPO, is that like, I think there's this vision that companies that come to certain level have things kind of like figured out Mm -hmm. that like other companies don't. And Mm -hmm. so it's really surprising to me if it's like, well, no, it's like, you just kind of like keep pushing forward. You keep kind of having like, you know, raising the bar for the basis for like how the organization is structured and leadership and all those things. And you just like, keep moving forward. And they certainly like Tesla, maybe certainly didn't seem like they had it all figured out or like, no, no, like things were pretty tied together and people were pretty like, no, (laughs) no I mean
1: and, and let's remember like I was a I was like the lowliest of individual contributors so like I, I couldn't see anything behind the curtain but like my my perception was that it, it was just a, a mess you know yeah. on so many levels like departments didn't communicate well together I mean one of my like funniest stories that I can tell is like when we moved from the like random office building off of 101 um, into the nice new Sandhill Road yeah. location for for Tesla, I think it was Sandhill. It's yeah. wherever it was. Um, they we like we like had to move in February for some reason. Like there was like this like very specific deadline, but they hadn't put in any of like the hate HVAC. Like there was no heat in the building <laughs> for like months, <laughs> and they were like, "Who cares?" Like go wear your gloves. Like I literally bought fingerless gloves so that I could type and I, like worked in like a beanie with a blanket around me. And we just all accepted it as like, this is what we have to do to like get this startup off the ground. And I look back on that sort of stuff and I'm like, what? I mean, our Christmas gift from the company that year was a fleece blanket. I am not exaggerating. I'm not. I love that. I mean, I love that. you know, and, and so but you just you know you didn't know what you didn't know, and you, you were excited about it because the one thing about Tesla is like everybody really believed in the technology. We knew that that like what what the company was doing was special and different and necessary. But there were just so many hurdles, and then it was it was it's so complex to bring a brand new car, an electric car, an electric sports car. It costs one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, bring all that to market that it just it it just kept feeling like sheer force of will that like the company could keep getting to the next stage to the next stage. And I mean, it wasn't until 10 years after I left the company that those, that measly set of options that I was granted was worth anything and look what it is today. And so, you know, I don't know, it's just, it's crazy how it all works out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I think that's such like an important sort of story to share because again, it's like this myth, this it feels very much like, okay, like we have these early day startup, like from the garage kind of stories, but then like, there's a big chunk missing between like the ramp up, the buildup, like all of the years and years and years of like putting in the work and, and kind of like figuring things out that I think a lot of people don't really talk about. Cause it's like, they have these kind of interviews once all the success has come and they kind of reminisce on like the early early days but there is a there's a lot in between there mm-hmm. that like teams are growing and there's it becomes so complex you know yeah um, so then after tesla your next position was at twitter
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you were there for a really long time mm-hmm. and i would my my first question is what was it like to be in like 2010 more or mm-hmm. less mm-hmm. in a social media plot like company Yeah. So it was 2010.
1: The company was about 300 people. When I joined, we were just starting to monetize. Um, and, but Twitter had had its South by Southwest moment where it was this kind of hip place that celebrities were on the platform. You know, Justin Bieber was massive. Like everybody who was on Twitter, followed Justin Bieber. It seemed like, um, there was a lot of hype. Um, and, and that was so fun. I mean, you know, and and I'll start with that piece of it. Like, it was just fun. Like, the company was growing organically at this phenomenal rate. I mean, we had more inbound interest in advertising with us in our, like, very, very basic initial ad offering. You know, it was... Um, it was amazing people to work with so many cool people wanted to come work there and you just got to sit next to them every day. It was, you know, that was, I mean, that's probably one of the most fun, if not the, the most fun experiences of my career, those, those first few years there. Um, and You know, and, but we went from the, during the time I was there, we went from 300 people to 4,500 people. And in, you know, about a six year period and the company changed massively. And I think, you know, and then the company has changed probably another practically 100% in the time that I've been gone. And I think, you know, when I think about what Twitter is now and what we thought it would be back then, you know, I think on one hand, like very early on, we were talking about Twitter as the global town square, you know, and that was the goal of the platform. Yeah. Um, I, but I also think that no one really thought through like exactly all the implications of what that would be. Yeah. And you know, I have, I've i I'm very self aware that on the sales side, like I didn't, I wasn't even as a sales leader, I wasn't privy to a lot of like the product and. Yeah. Um, like privacy and all those types of conversations. But, um, I think that's one of the things that's been really interesting to me is to just like, see how the platform has evolved and kind of what people think of it as now today. Whereas back then when I first joined, it was like, ah, Twitter, people tell other people what they ate for lunch. And it's, it's just not that anymore for sure. So
2: no. And did you, in those first days or like not the first days, but the, these years at Twitter, like from, from in those years, did you see like the, the, the arc, like sort of that change coming through? Cause really when we think of Twitter today and especially in the light of like, of course, politically for the past, like feels like 10 years now, actually five years. (laughs) Did did you kind of see that tipping point a little bit with how people use Twitter? Like I I love to, to look at, you know, I remember around 2011, like I was, in-house marketing director. And, um, I started using with my team, like social media for business. And it was like, it was such a big deal that literally like CNN wrote an article about what I was doing (laughs) because we (laughs) were on Twitter. Right. And it was so like radical to think like businesses on social media. Right. And it's Mm -hmm. just so funny to think like what it is now, but did, did, did you like feel or see kind of the arc of change with how people were using Twitter, how businesses started using them. And like, do you remember any of the conversations going on internally of like, 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 you know, do do we need to control the conversation? How do like, how much do we get involved? How much do we not like, I'm sure Mm -hmm. from the sales perspective, there was a lot of that, like on the advertising side as well. Right.
1: Yeah. I, an anecdote just jumped to mind, but I'll, I'll save it for a, a moment later. I do, you know, in the very early days, it was much more people thought of it more like truly they thought of they, they thought, and maybe still think of Facebook. Like I'm going to share like personal updates and it's about me and my life. And, you know, we can go back on time hop and see what we tweeted back then and then just cringe. Cause it feels awful, you know, yeah. Um, cause you're like, Oh, why did I put that out into the world? Um, but we definitely saw the evolution pretty rapidly. Once we started offering ads, we saw businesses begin to flock to the platform and then start experimenting with how to use it. And then simultaneously, there was a really big internal question about how do we teach just the average Twitter user, like content consumer, how to better use Twitter? Because, you know, a lot of people really thought Facebook was far more intuitive and Twitter, there was a lot of like, I don't get Twitter when we would talk to people about, you know, cause it, it was all about user growth. Like every conversation in the early days, which is like, how do we get more people on the platform? Um, and so we, we, you know, moved over time To really encouraging people on Twitter to follow your interests, Mm. Um, and then from a business perspective, it was all about hey, advert when and when you advertise to people, it was you know yes, we were still talking about psychographics, but it was really like hey, what are adjacent interests if they're interested in Y and your X, like use Y and you're targeting those those sorts of things, which seems so basic and obvious now, but were like revolutionary back then. But we hadn't gotten to the point while I was there where we had these massive, loud personalities that were really like impacting the whole kind of like direction. And I think the idea of like moderation on the platform was certainly there from day one. I mean, and the team that worked on this are the most like unsung heroes that get so much grief for a basically impossible task from my perspective. But, um, you know, it felt kind of more like, basic and obvious back then too, like keep the bots off, you know, make sure people aren't doing truly horrible thing and posting truly horrible content, but the, all the gray area probably existed just as much as it does now, but it wasn't the public figures who were venturing into the gray area at that point. So it, it probably should have been something that was more on people's mind and it just wasn't yet because it hadn't been forced to be Almost like the existential crisis that Twitter feels like it's feeling today. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think that's I think that's yeah captures the majority cool. of
2: it. What were some of like your your, I guess through that sort of portion of your career, what were the moments that you were like really proud of? Just because it's this like huh. really int- I don't know. It's just like a really yeah. interesting position to have been in, and such like a a company that really helped. Shape like really where we are now, right? Like change yeah. the world. Yeah, how we interact with each other. <laughs> it's I, I would.
1: It's one of those things where my gut answer is to look. I kind of had two different, almost like careers at Twitter. I helped build the mid-market sales team, sort to a certain point, and then I left mid-market to go build the SMB sales team from scratch.
2: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. and when I look at the bodies of work in both those roles, like what was this when I joined the company and, or joined or took on the role, and what was it when I left the role? It's hard for those holistic things to not be the things that I'm most proud of. Like we literally went from zero revenue to hundreds of millions of dollars, or, you know, I was one of three individual contributors on the team, and by the time I left the mid-market team, I'd done literally thousands of interviews and there were hundreds of reps across the world. You know, I'd gone to Sao Paulo to help hire. I'd gone to Dublin, Ireland to help hire. Um, and I look at the evolution and there's so many different things that I did to make it happen, but it was also, it was such a tight team and we were all working together to get to the point that we got to that, um, it, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to pull out like a singular event. And then I'd mm-hmm. say the exact same thing with building the SMB org, you know, they hired the leadership first and then we built, we built the whole organization out from there. And, you know, I know, you know, I, I had to run a like very statistically rigorous pilot program to even prove that we needed inside sales reps to service the SMB advertisers. And that was such a win because I knew all along that it was needed but to win the budget, because we were a much bigger bureaucratic, more bureaucratic company at that point, And I had to go, you know, win the budget and, you know, assess the, the ROI and all those things that you do. When I, when I got the go ahead to build that team, it was a, such, such a winning moment. Um, and then when my team saw so much success in our first year, and we expanded into Japan and Dublin and Barcelona and all that, and I, and I got to think like, okay, it's because of what I built in this first year that all these other things are becoming possible. Given again, so many people were part of this. It wasn't just me by any means, but um, those, those are some of the things that when I think back, I'm most proud of.
2: And it sounds like, I mean, cause just understanding that this was kind of like the second big part of your career or like the, yeah, the second, right. After Tesla, it's like, you must have learned like so much on that, on the job there. I mean, coming from sort of environmental like <laughs> studies and, and, and that to, to really getting immersed in like growing these international, like pieces of the company, this international sales force is like, wow, it must have been a place full of amazing mentors, amazing learning opportunities. And you just kind of like grew and grew and grew as the org grew and grew and grew, which is like, probably a really such a special like, place in your heart, I'm sure. Yeah, Um, it really was. So I want to talk a little bit about the IPO thing. Because, you know, when I was in college, I don't think I even knew what an IPO was. So my question is, is that, you know, when did you become, like, when you were in Tesla, was it very clear? And did you understand kind of the impact of being a part of that? (laughs) I I don't even think I, I mean, I'm sure I'd heard the term IPO before Tesla, um,
1: but I definitely didn't understand it or, or, you know, know what it was on like a real level prior to that. And I'll, and I'll honestly say Tesla, I mean, we had the big party, we, you know, did the things that you do when you IPO, but Tesla also wasn't a company, which Twitter was very different in the way they approached their IPO that did a lot of education around like, what does this really mean? And now your options are real thing, you know, they're yeah, like, you
2: need something, yeah.
1: or, or this is what this means for your career. Like none of those conversations were had that I recall at least. Um, or maybe I just didn't take part of them. Who knows? That's also yeah. a possibility. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I can't say I walked away from the, I, and also I had a tiny stake in the game. So it didn't really mean anything to me anyway. Um, I don't think I really understood truly what an IPO was and what it meant and what it meant for me and the company and all that kind of stuff till until Twitter.
2: Yeah. And so, and then how, like, so how early on were you at Twitter before they IPO'd?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, if I joined in 2010 and I think they IPO'd in 2014, maybe, oh, wow. you know, okay. Yeah. I know I had already moved from the mid market to the S and B team. So was it, so it's like, yeah, 2013, 14, somewhere in there.
2: And so like, what did the ramp up look like for that? Really for
1: Twitter, it, the ramp up was exciting and we talked about it and all that sort of stuff, but like our day to day didn't change. I mean, maybe the stakes and hitting our revenue goals and all that kind of stuff were higher, certainly. Um, but uh, you know, the, the actual day-to-day really didn't change at all. You know, the things that did change some was, you know, cause I was leading, leading teams at that point is how I talked to my team about it, how I prepared them for it, um, how I just educated them about like what it was and what it means. That was probably more what changed than anything else. Um, and whereas Tesla In, you know, maybe I shouldn't share this, but Tesla was a much bigger deal because they made us come in and work Saturdays for three months leading into the IPO. Yeah. And, um, like it it was, it was really do or die. You know, if, if the company didn't sell enough roadsters and like they, it was like whips cracked and, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. Probably some shady practices, shady practices in the sense that I'm pretty sure they didn't pay us for those Saturdays. (laughs) You know, like I'm pretty, like I think they gave us a t shirt at the end and we joked, like, I worked Saturdays for three months and all I got was this lousy t shirt. You know, that actually felt like a much more high stress lead into an IPO. Whereas Twitter, it was like, yeah, let's just keep doing what we're doing, hitting our revenue goals like we have been, and we're going to have this like big, awesome event and this great, awesome party and all these options that you've had for a long time are actually going to be worth something. Um, so I don't know, maybe it speaks to kind of the leadership and the time that each company chose to go public and that sort of stuff. But it, di- it was a very different vibe at both of those two
2: companies. And do you think that like, and I mean, I want to ask about like, you know, the team, is there a lot that change? Because I mean, now, I mean, it's not just these two IPOs you've been a part of. You've been a part of three or four?
1: Mm-hmm. Three.
2: three. Okay. Yeah. So this is sort of my, my misunderstanding or my question I'd love clarity on is like, does a lot change after an IPO? Just I like- think
1: that's one of actually the most common misconceptions about an IPO is that there's going to be some sort of drastic difference pre and post IPO. And I would say, in terms of people's like day to day and the way the company operates, and you know what your what your job is, if you know as a as
2: an employee, like it's effectively the same. Um, like a big, I guess my I, this is probably misunderstanding, but I, I always feel that there's like a big maybe shuffle around or big changes that happen after it because it's like in the Tesla, it's like you're kind of getting to the point you're like doing whatever it takes to like get to that event. Mm -hmm. Right. That seems like unsustainable, but Mm -hmm. you know, is there an idea that like the company really needs to show up differently after an IPO? And so, yeah. Yeah.
1: Really? No, because you're having to do all the things to have a successful IPO to kind of like get your, get everything in order for like, you know, years, you know, prior to the IPO so that Once you get to that point and you go public, you should be in a pretty good position where, you know, if you, if you've been hitting your goals and you're setting expectations, right. With, you know, your shareholders and wall street and everybody, you just keep doing what you're doing, you know, and then continuing the growth. I mean, you know, there, there's all that sort of stuff, but it's not like any switch flips and things become. Different about what expectations are, what you need to do, mm. um, and that's something that I absolutely take time to talk to my teams about when we're leading into an IPO. You know, mm. I think about an IPO as like it is a amazing, exciting celebration-worthy milestone in the really long life of a successful company. Mm. And I'm going to forget the exact statistic, but I think what a lot of people don't realize is like something like 70% of the value of most successful companies is built post IPO. Mm.
2: You know?
1: So it, it really, in the, in the lifespan of a company that's ultimately going to have longevity and be successful. And IPO is still like in the beginning, like toddlerhood, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe like probably not even adolescence. Um, and and so I encourage my employees to celebrate the IPO, get excited. You know, they've got a little additional money in their pocket, you know, all that sort of stuff. But the reality is like, we're all going to come back to work tomorrow and kind of keep cranking at the same job. But, but, and I think that this is a really key point. The fact that you've gotten IPO in the first place shows that you are working for a successful company. And with success comes continued growth and growth of the company means growth and opportunity for the individuals at the company. Yeah. And I really try to bring that into the forefront of the conversation, especially with people who haven't experienced an IPO before, because if I had to point at the single best things that have happened to me, having gone through three IPOs is the fact that I've shown career progression and growth at, at the three companies that I've been a part of. And it has proven my ability to have impact and value at three different companies that were ultimately successful. And it is it's a strong indicator of my ability to have come and have impact at your company, Mr. Future Employer, Mrs. Future Employer. Um, so I think that's something that is also people don't think about very much as more than just like the financial aspects for themselves and their company, but also what it means for your career.
2: Yeah. And, and that brings me to the idea of, you know, if you were to see a common thread, from, and I guess this is like, seems like three different, very uncommon, very different IPO situations. But, you know, if we take the symbol of an IPO as, as yes, you are working with, for a successful company that has the potential to impact the world, right? That's sort of the level that you are at once you've IPO, right? So do you see a common thread in the leadership in the organization that leads companies to that level of success. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause
2: the, I mean, the founders
1: of the three companies that I've been with are pretty, pretty darn different yeah. individuals. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if I, if I had to step back and think a bit about I mean, I think one big thing, and maybe this is so obvious that it's not worth saying, but I'll say it anyway. Like the fact that the founders had the initial vision Mm. to identify a real need within a significant target market, it's like, that's where it all starts. If it's not a real need, if there's not real product market fit and the target market isn't large enough to support a significant business, not a lot you can do about that you know, so it starts with the, that, and then I, I do think despite how different the the founders are at the various companies I've been with, they all have been very good at execution and they've gone about it in different ways, but like when they say they're going to get something done, they go get it done. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, again, I think there's like personal opinion, better and worse ways to get those results, but, but they've all managed to do it and it's all led to an IPO and probably the, the last one is, um, I do think the leaders were self-aware enough to like identify their gaps Mm. or just not want to do the job and hire other people to do it. Um, That they would hire great people around them and trust them to execute, but also make sure to hold them accountable for those results. Mm -hmm. Um, And because I think, oh no, no, I mean, I, I would say, like, I, I do, I, I feel like the places where I've seen founder struggle or company struggle is that the founders trying to still do it all, or they don't trust the people or they don't hire the right people. Like a lot of it is about the people that they hire.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my question was just going to be, you know, that phrase that's like, you know, you build the people and the people build the company. Like Mm -hmm. absolutely is it's true on so many levels, but can you share and for better or for worse, can you share the ways that you've experienced like how successful companies build their people well yeah
1: um i i guess i've probably seen two like kind of two like big buckets of ways to do it the mm-hmm. first one we don't need to talk about for a long time is like hey I've worked with this person before. I know they do a good job. I'm going to hire them to do the same job again. And because I trust them and we already had a relationship, they're just going to run with it and deliver me the results um, yeah. that I know that they can deliver. Um, the, the second one, which is, you know, the harder but more common one, is that, you know, you interview people. And I think, like, it, it higher levels of leadership, like a super rigorous – Interview process is necessary. You want you know experts grilling this person on not just the big picture strategic aspects, but like you got to be an operator. You know when you're joining things fairly early stage, and so can these people roll up their sleeves and really get the thing done. Um, so yeah, the rigorously interview, and then I I believe that a any leader manager's real role is to empower the people that work for them. So set hop, set very clear and high expectations, hold your team accountable to achieving those expectations. And because you've hired those smart, go-getter, self-aware people, they're going to, they're going to go get it done and you stay out of the way. But what you make it very clear that you're available for, in addition to accountability, is you're there to brainstorm, remove roadblocks, um, advise, like you're there for all of those things, but, you know, making sure that the people around you know that you're you've got their back that you're behind them that that you remove that fear of failure to the degree possible because it's some things if you fail it obviously really is bad um yeah.
2: that's the
1: best thing that you can do for the experienced people that you're bringing on around you
2: yeah yeah that's actually pretty cool that actually leads us to my next question which is like for any new founders or founders that are sort of carrying this bigger vision, right? To go public, to build something, to change the world. Like what is the piece, the biggest piece of advice you can offer based on all your experiences? Like I would guess it has something to do with this realm, right? Building the people, but I don't know, anything else you can think of?
1: Yeah. Um, first of all, like have a good idea, make sure it's a good idea. of <laughs> Don't go spend a bunch of time trying to build a company on a bad idea. Yeah. Um, I, I do think, yes, hire amazing people, set your bar really high, hire amazing people, and then get out of their way is, is the a number one. Like if you, if you don't do that, you're probably not going to get much else done. Um, but, but tactically, if I had to add two more things on there that kind of all go together with hiring a great team and holding each other accountable is I, I just, I find like the OKR goal setting process in a collaborative and transparent way. Like you've got to do that out of the gate. Um, And it needs to be, you know, a company wide process. It needs to have input from all the people who are working on these goals together. And obviously The process will change as the company grows and all that good stuff. But I just, I, I, and then the transparency around both goals and achievement on said goals, you know, you got to be comfortable talking about it, whether it's going well or whether it's not. Um, And then also data to drive decisions. Like in the startup, I know that you don't always have the data and you got to work with what you've got. But if you can set that foundation early, as early as possible that you are capturing that data pretty much every company I've been a part of has had to gone through some like retroactive, like restructuring of systems to begin capturing the data they need to make the decisions to scale. And yeah. it's so painful. And it just takes so much time by so many people. It's such a headache that it's like, hey, think about that early, like build your foundations around that early. And again, it will change as your company grows, but you will never regret tracking more things if you if you set it up in an intelligent way.
2: Oh, I think that's so, ooh, that's so good. And one thing I I can I can I think you probably have the same experience. Like I, I have run into founders in my experience that like they they keep numbers close to their chest sometimes, like revenue numbers and sales numbers and all these things, and they don't share it. Maybe because they don't have, maybe they don't they don't have full employees. Maybe they have a combination of like contractors, employees. But those numbers are so important to share. Like it's so important for people to know where, where they are, where the team is in order to improve. And it's like, there's no, there should be no secret, like, you know, the sales numbers need, like, we need to know, right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and build out those systems. And I love the, the goals thing, because again, like in order to facilitate people being clear on what they need to accomplish and letting them run with it, that process is imperative. It's imperative, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I love that. Love that. Well, okay. We're running out of, I mean, I have things, you have things. So the last thing I want to ask is like, where can everyone follow you, learn more, get any advice or tips on sales processes and sales, you know, like tips and tricks and um, like any social platforms you like to hang out on.
1: So I wish I had a better answer here, but because my business is very fairly new, it's all still work in progress. I will have a website relatively soon. We will
2: retroactively put in the show notes when yeah. it's done.
1: Um, for now, LinkedIn is the best place. Um, I'm pretty active there. I will be updating LinkedIn with all the details about where to find me and reach out to me. And in the interim, that is the best place to reach out to me. Yeah. Um, Yeah, if you followed me on Instagram, it'd just be a bunch of pictures of my puppy and my kids. So, your your listeners probably aren't as into that.
2: Um, Well, one last thing to to leave everyone with. If you were to say, like, what is the biggest, maybe, misconception about having, running, facilitating a a really um, successful sales program? Do you have any, like, words of wisdom? If you had to kind of summarize it up into, like, the most important thing for sales mm-hmm. for a startup? What do you think mm-hmm. it would be? I know it's a big, it's a big one. I had didn't have you think about that before.
1: Hire great people. Yeah. I mean, it, it really goes back to everything I just said. It's like hire great people, set clear expectations, get out of their way and hold them accountable. Yeah. Um, but be patient. That's, that's true too. You know, depending on what you sell, it's always going to probably take longer, always going to probably. It will likely take longer than you think it will. And don't, don't jump to conclusions too early, which is where the data comes into play. Because if you've got those upper funnel metrics, can give you a lot more peace of mind that eventually those lower funnel metrics like revenue will materialize. That's perfect. Failed See
2: pain. what I did there? Thank you so much. That's perfect. I love it. You wrapped <laughs> it all up. Thank you so much. This is great. This is, so
1: this is great. I loved it. Thank you. This is so yeah. fun.
0: You did it. You made it to the end of the episodes. Thanks for sticking around with me and listening all the way to the end. I really appreciate you as an audience member. And I hope that you found this helpful. If you did like this episode, it would mean so, so much to me. If you subscribed, if you rate and review this podcast, it helps other people know that this podcast has something worth saying it also would be super awesome if you could take a screenshot and share on instagram and tag me at ugly ventures u-g-l-i ventures v-e-n-t-u-r-e-s i am always so appreciative to hear from you and i hope to see you back here next week on the marketing for startups podcast